Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, my elementary school had this great idea on how to make kids behave better. Now, I know you all are a bunch of good Christians, you're a bunch of good Methodists, you've never misbehaved a day in your life, especially when you were in elementary school. However, there is at least one person in your midst who did misbehave in elementary school all the time. And so our teachers were always coming up with these new ideas of how to get us to stay in line. Because in the classroom, we were pretty good. You got one teacher, you got 20-some students, you're going to stay in line. Teacher will separate kids that shouldn't be together, all that sort of stuff. But in the lunchroom, in the lunchroom, that was our domain. We could do whatever we wanted in the cafeteria. And so they came up with these ideas. One year, they literally bought a stoplight. Red, yellow, green. And they put it up in the corner. And if it was green, everything was on the door. Everyone was fine. But if it got to yellow, that means caution, you're getting a little too loud. And if it was red, you had to be silent. How well do you think that worked out? Because it didn't. But the next year, they had an idea. We had a cafeteria worker. Her name was Miss Christian. Very ironically named woman, okay? And she came up with what we call the three-flower policy. Because in our cafeteria, there were circle tables, about eight kids who sat at each table. And in the center of every table was a vase. And in the vase were three plastic flowers. Now, if your table was misbehaving, Miss Christian would come and she would take one of your flowers. Now, that was your first warning. You didn't want to have a flower taken because if she had to come and take a second flower, you were in deep trouble. Because if she took your third and your final flower, there were three punishments that could come. The first punishment, extra homework. I mean, who in their right mind wants more homework? Punishment number two, no recess. Now, if you want to give me extra homework, fine. But you're going to tell me I can't go play on the jungle gym? No way. But the third punishment was the worst of all. The third punishment was a phone call home to your parents. Again, you all watch good questions. I know the principal never called your parents about your behavior. But there is someone in your midst who did have the principal call. So one day, we're sitting at the table, my best friends and I, and we're having a good time at lunch, and we were being a little rambunctious, so Miss Christian came, and she took flower number one. So we repented, asked for forgiveness, we tried to reform our behavior, but sure enough, we just couldn't help ourselves that day, so she came and took flower number two. This was the first time we'd ever been down to one flower, and we were afraid. Except one of us wasn't afraid. Not me this time. His name was Jordan. Jordan had a plastic spoon in his hand and a little cup of chocolate pudding. And he took his spoon and he put it in the pudding. And instead of bringing it to his mouth, he grabbed his other fingers and he pulled the pudding back. And he looked across the table at the prettiest girl in our class. And he let that baby fly. <laughs> And for one of the only moments in my life that felt like everything was in slow motion as I watched that chocolate pudding fly across the table. 
and it landed square in the forehead of the prettiest girl in our class. And for a moment, everything was silent. But then we began to erupt in laughter and in cheering, and it was the funniest thing we had ever seen. And Miss Christian hobbled over to our table, and she took flower number three. She took out a piece of paper. She asked each of our names. And we had to write down our names. She had to write down our names. And then she looked at me. Me! <laughs> Gave me the paper with our names on it. The incriminating evidence. And she said, when lunch is over, you are to bring this to the principal's office. She knows what to do with it because she's calling all of your parents. We were silent the rest of lunch. I mean, this is the worst thing that had ever happened in my 10 years of existence at this moment. I had all of our names in my pockets. And so lunch ends, we go throw all our food away in the trash cans. And she came up to me one more time. She said, now, Taylor, don't get any funny ideas like throwing away that piece of paper before you get to the office. To this day, I have no idea why she planted that little sin in my mind. Why she was the serpent to my Adam. Because you know what I did, friends? I ripped that piece of paper up and I threw it away. I told my mom the story a couple days ago. And she was so angry at me for something I did 20 years ago. How could you rip it up? I said, well, I wasn't planning to. She gave me the idea. <laughs> no one likes getting in trouble. Nobody. doesn't matter whether you're 10 or you're 30 or you're 90. Nobody likes getting in trouble. It's not the trouble we mind. It's getting caught. I mean, we like to do all kinds of bad stuff. We just don't want it to be known that we're doing all the bad stuff. If we can avoid it, we do everything we can to avoid indictment, even though we love getting up to mischief. Then we read a scripture like this one from Jeremiah, and it makes us really uncomfortable in our pews. We hear, I accuse you, I accuse your children and your children's children, and it makes us squirm. His condemnation, it resonates with us in ways we're not proud to admit. Because each of us, in our own time, we can take a good hard look in the mirror. We can catch glimpses of our own waywardness, our lifestyle choices, our foolish decisions. And we can know that God is speaking the truth. If I were a braver man, I could have given you a more recent story of mischief I got into. But I told you one about when I was in elementary school because I knew it would make us laugh. But I do bad things all the time. We all do. We do things we know we shouldn't. We avoid doing things we know we should. Or to put it like Jeremiah puts it, people who pursue worthless things, they become worthless themselves. That's a tough one. The people of God during the time of Jeremiah, they were a people of foolish wastefulness. They had been given everything they needed, plenty of land, fruit that was growing, water to drink. But for them, it was never enough. To make matters even worse, it wasn't just the people, it was the priests. Jeremiah says the priests went off in search of this elusive more, and they always returned back empty-handed. The desires in their hearts and their minds, their souls and their bodies, it was so blinding that they had forgotten who they were, and they had forgotten the story of what God had done for them. Which is why Jeremiah ends by talking about water and cracked cisterns. The people of Jerusalem, they were dying of thirst when he wrote this. 
literally and spiritually. The faithlessness of God's people had delivered the Babylonians to their doorsteps. And their aid and supplies had been cut off. The cisterns scattered throughout the city are beginning to crack because they have dried up and there's no water left. But it's more than just literal water that's missing. Jeremiah has eyes to see and a word from the Lord to preach that they have lost the living water of God. Not because it dried up and disappeared, but because the people made their own cisterns. They had bottled up their own understanding of enough instead of relying on God. The people lost their story. They had forgotten that God, their God, had been faithful to them, had delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt to the promised land, that God had been faithful to the covenant made with Abraham. But the people, they wanted to listen to another song. They wanted to follow their own thoughts and desires, and now they are accused, not just them, but their children's children. It's not just that you are bad, it's that your children are bad and your grandchildren are bad. Over and over again in the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, Israel knows itself as a people delivered by God. And even today, that's who we are. We were delivered from a different tyranny. Not from a pharaoh in a faraway land, but from the reign of sin and death. And it's because we know the story of what God did that we can live faithfully and fully today. We are the stories we tell. We are the stories. I say this all the time. We are the stories we tell. Just think about something that's important to you or to your family. Whatever the thing is, there's probably a story that goes along with it. A story that can bring the object to light. Narratives shape the world around us. They give us the means by which we understand who we are and whose we are. My mother tells a story about when she was pregnant with me. Watching the Washington Redskins play football. I'm a big Washington Redskins fan, which, friends, is not an easy thing to be because the Redskins are pretty bad. But my mother, when she was pregnant with me, bought an extra large John Riggins Redskins jersey. And she has memories of me inside of her while wearing that Redskins jersey. So every time I put a Redskins jersey on, I think of my family. I think about my mother. I think about my son wearing his Redskins jersey. It's, I love the Redskins because my family loves the Redskins, because of the story that's connected with it. We are the stories we tell. And even though we know that we're the stories we tell, more often than not, we act like we're not the stories we tell. We act like we're the things we possess. We value ourselves on what we have, on the clothes we wear, and the car we drive, the house we own, and all of those things are worthless. They can all disappear with the wind. Have any of you ever bought a shirt that really made you happy? Has a car ever fixed your marriage? What good is a house if you don't have running water? So Jeremiah lambasts the people, lambasts us all these centuries later. Why have you forgotten what God did for you? Why are you rushing after things that can't bring you life? Why have you dug your own cisterns when I'm the one with living water? And here's the deal. Jeremiah, Jeremiah knows what he's doing. He's not simply just trying to make them feel bad. He wants them to change. The prophet wants them to tune their hearts back to God's frequency, and it's not going to work. It doesn't work. Just read the rest of the Old Testament. Things just get worse for the people of Israel. As they refuse to listen to God and they keep digging their own cisterns. 
But it was never going to work out anyway. It was never going to work. Because the more prophets prophesy about the need to change, the more preachers preach about the need to change, the more things stay the same. No one goes to an AA meeting because their spouse tells them to go. No child jumps at the opportunity to do more homework because their mother yells at them to do it. Just think about the last time someone tried to fix you. Did it work? What about the last time you heard a sermon that told you, if you just do this thing, everything in your life will be fixed? Did it work? That's the kicker about preaching. People don't change because we tell them to. It's our humanity. We don't change because someone tells us to change. It's infuriating. But the only way we change is when we make the decision to change. I say this to people all the time. People come to my office. Oh, she doesn't make me happy anymore. Oh, he doesn't make me happy anymore. You know who the only person that can make you happy is? It's you. You can't change anybody. And no one can change you. The only person who can change you is you. It's infuriating, but it's true. And we can do lots of things. We can show people the door, but we can't push people through the door. And even getting people to the door is a pretty hard challenge to begin with. We like to talk about how the world is changing. How we can barely keep up with all of it. And part of the reason it feels like the world is spinning out of our control is because we refuse to spin with it. It's because we've got our feet so firmly planted in the ground that we can't imagine anything being different. We are creatures of habit. We find a routine, we find a lifestyle, we find a world that seems to be fine for us and we stick with it even if that thing is a denial that God is the one who provides living water for nothing. Because instead, we've got this crooked and broken notion that we've got to dig our own wells to get what God has already given to us. When Jeremiah points out in this indictment, the thing we almost always miss is that this is exactly what he's criticizing. It's not just that God's people needed to be better, though it wouldn't have hurt. The problem for God's people is that they're so convinced they can do everything they need on their own when they're not really able to do anything. We are all works in progress. That's absolutely true. But this desire to fix other people, to change other people all the time, it usually just makes things worse. I mean, should we stop trying? No, of course not. We always should be trying, but the point isn't to give up. It's to realize that we all need help. Help outside of ourselves, help even outside the people near us. We need a savior. We need living water that never, ever runs dry. We need the bread and we need the cup. We can't do this on our own. We can't do it on our own. But thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, we have been made his own. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Would you please bow your heads and join me in prayer? Lord, you invite us again and again to this, your table, knowing full and well how bad we really are, how many flowers have been taken out of the vases of our lives. You know us better than we even know ourselves, O Lord. 
all of our bruises and our warts and our faults and our failures, and still you say that we are enough. That we are enough. That you can make something out of our nothing. So Lord, we confess that we have not been good enough. That we have failed to love you and others and even ourselves. That we have not been the people you've called us to be. And we are sorry. Amen.